0: Um, as we approach the Word of God this morning, I'd like to share with you a, a message that I shared with uh, the group at the Alpha Holy Spirit Day, um, that is part of uh, what we teach and part of the Alpha Holy Spirit Day. But permitting me to be personal uh, for a moment. I really wrestled with the message to bring this morning and struggled a little bit. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is I stand before you, if I'm brutally honest today, I stand before you a little bit burst. For a number of reasons, but also um, because today is well, today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day that Christians the world over, churches the world over, are marking and celebrating the outpouring and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as a Pentecostal church, whose whole definition is based around that, we don't tend to be a church that allow high days and holy days and religious festivals to shape our teaching and our focus, but When the religious festival is the very definition of the church that you belong to, there is that kind of expectation, I suppose, to lean into speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking about tongues and power and gifts and all that kind of stuff. But this morning, I'd like to perhaps focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a slightly different way, because this morning... Should a message that I think I need to be anchored in again, but a message that I think God would seek to anchor us in as a church. Something pretty foundational, very basic. There's nothing revolutionary or revolutionary, but it's something that I think God would seek to put into the foundation of the church. Is that okay? And something probably already is, to be fair, it is already in the foundation of the church, but we just want to revisit that. And as we begin to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday, our anchor point is, uh, our starting point is a very small sentence tucked away in 1 John 4 and verse 16 that simply says this. God is love. It is such a simple, short sentence. But yet this statement is at the very foundation of everything we believe about God. Our entire faith system is based upon and built upon this truth. This is a foundation that if you were to pull that away, our entire faith would crumble to nothing. Everything we understand about God, everything that we believe about God, our entire salvation, our identity in Christ, and our understanding of who God is, all of it is built upon this statement. God is love. He is an essence. He is in nature. He is in character, love. He is the epitome of love. He is the source of pure, untainted, and perfect love. Everything we believe about Him, everything we understand about Him is built on this foundational truth. However, there is another belief that we have that lies at the very foundation of our faith, and that is that God is not singular. He is community. He is three, but at the same time, He is one. And all Christians, regardless of their denominational background, regardless of the expression that they belong to, any Christian that is worth their salt, believes in the doctrine that we call the Trinity. The belief that God is one complete unit, but yet he is three distinct persons. And I know that there's analogies that we use to try and understand those ice and steam and water and I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a son and all that kind of stuff. But none of that even comes close to properly explaining this very complex belief of the Trinity. And the good news is we're not going to spend the morning trying to unpack the complex belief of the Trinity. But if we were to title them by names, then we would understand that the Godhead comprises of the following. There is God, or Jehovah, or Yahweh, which is just simply the term that is used in the Scripture to refer to the divine. Anytime the Scripture refers to the divine, as in the creator of the universe, the most supreme being at work in the cosmos, anytime Scripture describes or points to the divine, the word that we read in our Bible is God. Then we have Jesus, or Jesus Christ, to give him his full Sunday name. Born of the Virgin, visited by wise men and shepherds, The performer of miracles, the source of profound teaching and insight, a fighter with religion, a source of fear for the demonic. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He ascended through the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of majesty with the name above every name. He is alive right now. His name is Jesus. And then we have the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost for the King James believers out there. And the Holy Spirit is a person he is a he with a nature and a character and a personality and he touched down appeared many times throughout the old testament became more prominent in the new testament during jesus life and ministry and of course we understand that on the day of pentecost He moved with such power to fulfill his purpose on the earth. And ever since that time, since he filled the disciples on that first day of Pentecost, he has been manifesting and demonstrating the reality of God and the power of transformation that is attached to the gospel. He's been manifesting in some really weird and wonderful ways that upsets religion and denominations and has done for centuries. He is the wonderful life-giving, life-changing Holy Spirit. Now, these are the members of the Godhead, and we can describe them in that way, but another way that we describe them is also by their function. They are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think if you were to stop someone in the street and ask them to define the Trinity, they would probably respond by saying, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing, when we describe them in that way, the starting point is God. They are all God. And what we've said is that the lens through which we have to view Him and our whole understanding of Him is built is this, God is love. So that means that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all love. And they're all involved in being and revealing love to us. And for the remainder of our time that we have this morning, that's the thought that we're going to explore. How each member of the Trinity is and reveals love to us. And we start with God the Father. God is the creator of this universe. He is the most supreme being in the cosmos. He is the source of pure and perfect love. And he's described to us as father. Throughout the Bible, he is referred to as father. Psalm 68 says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Isaiah 64. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching us to pray, and he says, this is how you have to address him, our Father, in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Again, Jesus is teaching us about who God is and what he's like. And in Matthew 7, he says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask and those who love Him? God is referred to as Father, and I love the fact that Jesus then takes the reference of Father and personalizes it and refers to Him as our Father and your Father. And perhaps the reason that God is called Father is because of His status as Creator. All life has its source in him. We refer to someone who fathers a child as someone who is involved in releasing life and bringing it into being. Perhaps the reason that he's referred to as father is because of his status as creator and the scripture backs that up. Deuteronomy 32, is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator who made you? All life has its origin in him. Everything that exists is because of him. He is referred to as father because he created the human race and humanity has its life and existence because of him. It flows from him. Therefore, he is titled as father. But today we would suggest that there's another reason why he's titled as father. And that is because he is in essence pure and perfect love. Psalm 103 presents this to us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So yes, he's father because he is the source of all life, but it's not just a transactional thing. It's not just that this is a status that he has. There's another dimension to that. He feels towards that which he has made. In the same way that a father has compassion for his children, in the same way that a father with his kids cannot help but feel overwhelming love for that which he gave life to, so does God towards us. He is referred to his father because of his unconditional, faultless, untainted, pure and perfect love towards the human race which he's created. And it's not just that this is what is said of him, it's actually what he says to us. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I've drawn you with my loving kindness. His love is everlasting, which means it lasts forever. It doesn't end. It doesn't run out. It's constant. It always has been and it always will be. So when we were alien to him, he loved us. When we sinned against him, he loved us. When we live for Him, He loves us. When we come and recognize what He's done and surrender our whole lives in response to grace, He loves us. When we give up our everything to pursue His plan and His purpose and live within the context of our will, His will, He loves us. When we give of who we are and what we have to serve His kingdom, He loves us. And do you know what? When we make mistakes, He still loves us. When we fall on our faces, Time and time again, he loves us. When we muck it up in the times that we live in such a way as we stick our fingers up at him, he loves us. He always has and he always will love us. Because his love is everlasting. It lasts forever. He doesn't know how to do anything but love. Paul puts it this way. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is saying here is nothing can separate us from God's love. But what I think is interesting is the way that he brings out these extremities, death and life, angels and demons, demons, Height and depth, past, present, future. These are extremities. And they're the extreme realities that are at work in our existence. And these extreme realities are uncontrollable and unpredictable. We cannot control, we cannot influence life and death. Angels and demons, regardless of what any person will tell you, we're binding and loosing. Heights and depths, highs and lows in life. The past, the present, the future, these are aspects of life that in some senses are uncontrollable and unpredictable, and what we're told here is that even the extremities of life, even the unpredictable, uncontrollable aspects that we have no power over, they have no power over the love of God. They cannot stop, hinder, or influence His love towards us. So powerful is His love, so everlasting. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God is one who is radically in love with us. Psalm 139 teaches us that. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. God's thoughts about you outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore if you were to go to a beach and attempt to count the numbers of grains of sand on the seashore, you would begin in a futile task. It is impossible. It's impossible to try and quantify on a beach the number of individual grains of sand on the seashore, let alone to try and comprehend and understand or even quantify the number of grains of sand that exist upon the shores of the face of the earth. It's an innumerable number. It's a number that cannot be understood, comprehended, or even spoken, but yet God's thoughts about you outnumber that. Anyone that thinks that much about you is infatuated with you. Anyone that thinks that much about you is crazy about you, is radically and ridiculously in love with you. And that's what God is. God is ridiculously in love with you and with me and he's in love with us as a father it's not sexual love it's not dependent on your looks your appearance your gender or your personality which for some of us might be a good thing but it's it's deeper than that it's the unconditional love of a compassionate father god the father is the essence of love it's who he is It's what he is, and it can never be changed. He is love. And the really amazing thing about God is that God doesn't just announce himself as love. He doesn't just announce, I love you. He proves it. He expresses it. He demonstrates it. He demonstrates it in Jesus. Everything Jesus did was motivated by and was to demonstrate the love of God to the world. Jesus was God's I love you to the world. And when we look at his life and ministry, we can see the tangible, unconditional, pure, perfect love of God being expressed. Matthew 9 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every sickness and disease. When he saw the crowds, he took compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, when he landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Jesus comes and he... He sees the crowds and he sees the people and he feels something. It's not that Jesus sees crowds and goes, excellent, my audience. It's not that he looks and he goes, great, there's a crowd. Here is my platform. Here is the people by which, through which, too, I will show how great and magnificent I am. He doesn't see them as objects in his master plan. He sees and he feels towards them. He feels compassion. And we're told that our Father has compassion on us. So what he feels and what he lives is the heart of the Father to us. We see throughout his life and everything he does, the heart of the Father shining through him, he was motivated by God's radical, unconditional love for a human race that was broken and hurting, and truly we can see that it is unconditional because we don't know how many of those to whom he showed compassion, how many of those to whom he he performed miracles, how many of people whose lives he turned around and needs he met, we don't know how many of them believed and didn't believe. We don't know how many of them followed him and how many of them didn't. We don't know how many became followers and disciples and how many just walked away. The Scripture doesn't present that information to us. It just says he had compassion on them all. For him, it wasn't about seeing a hand raised or someone praying a prayer or whether they were willing to give up everything and follow him and become his disciple. For him, it was just showing love unconditionally, regardless of the outcome, everyone, was on the receiving end of his compassion and his love. And of course, the greatest demonstration of love was when Jesus died on the cross to redeem us of our son and remove that which prevented us and stopped us from experiencing God. God so radically and ridiculously loved this world that he gave his son in what even Jesus describes as the greatest expression of love greatest demonstration of love. And the point of Jesus dying was so that we could not just know about God's love. It wasn't so that we could read it and say, okay, this is what the Bible says about him and, and this is why Jesus did what he did. So, I now have an academic understanding that God is love and that God loves me. Jesus didn't die so that we could intellectually know this. He died so that we could have a heart experience of this. Not just a knowledge of the head, but a knowledge of the heart. We wouldn't just know about it. We'd actually experience it and live every single day in the experience of a relationship with him as father. This is the greatest expression of love that is made available to us and this is what the scripture says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. God the Father lavished his love on us by making us, those of us who repent of our sins and ask Jesus into our lives, we are his children made possible because of God the Son. God the Son is the expression of love. God the Father is the essence of love. So who he is, cannot be changed. But God the Son brings that into an expression for us. And he expresses the love that contain, is contained within the Father's heart. How then is it, if it's not just head knowledge and it's to be heart knowledge? How is it that we experience this identity as children? How do we experience Him as Father? How do we experience the lavishing of His love and living it day in and day out? Well, this is where God, the Spirit, comes in. Jesus teaches his disciples that when he ascends back into heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to the world. And he's going to send the Spirit into the life of the believer. And the role and the function of the Spirit is very specific within the Godhead and therefore within the life of the believer. Because God, the Father of perfect, unconditional, untainted love, sends God the Son as the expression of that love who dies on the cross to bring us into relationship with God. He rises from the dead and ascends into heaven and he sends to his God the Spirit who is the experience of love. The Holy Spirit's job is not to make us speak in tongues. That's a byproduct. The Holy Spirit's job is not to make us fall over and get our hair standing on end and the quiver in the liver The Holy Spirit's job is not to bring about the haying and the hoeing and the unctions and all that stuff. He does all of that. That is just part of who he is and what he does. But his primary role and function is to communicate to us an experience of God's love. Everything else is secondary. His primary role is to communicate an experience of God's love. And in Scripture, we Read Jesus' teaching, the role and the function of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, and he he says these golden words. If you underline things in your Bible, underline this about the Spirit. John 16, verse 14, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Jesus makes a big claim here. He says, all that belongs to the father is his. And the father has invested his love into the son who expressed that love by dying to remove our sin and to bring us into a right relationship with God where we can begin to experience him as father and begin to know of his love. And the spirit then takes that salvation which Jesus bought. It was bought by his blood. If he bought it, it means he owns it. It's his It belongs to him. It's in his ownership. And the Spirit's job is to take what belongs to Jesus and manifest it within us to make it known to us, to make it a reality within us. So the Holy Spirit's job is to make the love of God a reality in each and every one of our hearts and lives. Paul describes it further. He says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. These words tell us quite clearly the role of God. The spirit is bringing us into the experience of love. Because the spirit that we receive is the spirit of sonship. Some translations translate it into adoption, the spirit of adoption. And they do that to make it gender neutral, but actually by doing so, they rob the passage of its true meaning because the gender-specific wording is important. It's not that it's only applicable to men, but it's what it represents. See, in biblical times, much like today, the Romans adopted the practice of child adoption that those without children could adopt from those who did. And in those times, much like today, at adoption, the child ceased to have any connection with its natural family and instead took on a union with its adopted family in such a way that the idea was that the child, and in particular the sons through whom the heritage came, the children and the sons were at one with their father, at one with their parents, and had the full access rights to a child that had been born into the family. The spirit that we receive Is a spirit of sonship. We are lavished with love to become God's children and we receive a spirit of sonship. The transaction that the Holy Spirit brings at the point of repentance is this He manifests salvation within us. We are adopted into God's family and we become one with the Father where we share in the riches of Christ. And because it's a spirit of sonship, it means that we're actually co heirs with Christ. We're brought into the same standing. We're co-heirs. The heritage of God, the inheritance of God, the full riches of God are ours. It doesn't matter whether we're male or female, boy or girl, when we ask Him into our lives, we receive the spirit of sonship. We're co-heirs with Christ, the Scripture says. The Spirit does more than just change our status. It's not just a transactional thing, a kind of legality thing where, okay, our status now on paper is that we are sons and daughters of God. No, He goes much further than that because He brings us into an experience of the transaction. Because it's through the Spirit at work in our lives that we cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus taught himself, Himself that It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. What's going on in the heart comes out of the mouth. So, if the mouth is speaking, Abba, Father, through the Spirit, then that must mean that the heart is experiencing, Abba, Father, through the Spirit. The heart is experiencing the pure, perfect love of the Father God, because that is then what is heard through the overflow from our lips. And that is most definitely the case because we're told that the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. The word testify means to confirm, which means that as the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, the most important outworking of that is not that everyone gets to speak in tongues. That's an amazing gift that God gives to us, an ability that is powerful and significant. But the most important aspect of his moving isn't just that there's power now and we can bind stuff and name and claim stuff and and we can function in spiritual gifts. Actually, what is happening when he moves in our hearts and our lives is that he is constantly instructing our spirits. He is constantly speaking to our spirits. He is constantly communicating to our spirits. You are loved by the heavenly father. You are loved by the one who is pure and perfect and unconditional in love. The Holy Spirit is constantly revealing, constantly commanding, constantly speaking into the innermost parts of who we are, that we are one with a perfect Father, constantly communicating love in the innermost being such a communication we call an expression. Holy Spirit is manifesting on a consistent basis the expression of God's love in our lives. He is bringing us into the experience of what the Father is expressing from heaven. And here's the thing that makes it so life-changing. When you experience and know that you are loved unconditionally by the creator of the entire universe, fear begins to dissolve and disappear. As a father, I love my children. They are my pride and joy. And hell and high water would not stop me in being at their side in going to them in a moment of crisis and a moment of trouble and a moment of worry and anxiety and upset. Hell and high water would not stop me. How much more is that the case for the pure and perfect Father? Not only to know that He is for us and that He loves us, but He promises to always be with us And to work for us in every single situation to manifest his love, even in the extremities of life, even in the uncontrollable, unpredictable aspects of life that we cannot influence and control in any way, it does not stop him being there, manifesting his love, because nothing can hinder or stop that love. So truly, his love drives out all fear brings us into an experience of real freedom. And that is an experience through the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that freedom is not attached to authority and anointing. That freedom is attached to who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and he brings love. And love and love he comes and he manifests and instructs you are loved it doesn't matter what the world says it doesn't matter what your circumstance says to you it doesn't matter what's ahead of you it doesn't matter what's behind you it doesn't matter where you've been it doesn't matter what you've done you are loved when he moves in our lives And he brings that ministry to our innermost being. He deepens the experience of the Father. And we know this because it's by him we cry, Abba, Father. We know the term Abba is this intimate description of dad, da, daddy. But the significance of this is that there's only one other person in the whole of Scripture who knew God and called him in that way. And that was Jesus In the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. If it's possible, take this cup from me, but yet not my will, but your will be done. So if the Holy Spirit moving in our lives causes us to cry, Abba, Father, then what that means is that the Holy Spirit moving in our lives brings us into the same union and the same intimacy with the Father that Jesus himself possessed. Because he is the experience of love. God the Father is the essence of love. God the Son is the expression of love. God the Spirit is the experience of love. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we could move into speaking about power and we could move into speaking about baptism. We could move into speaking about tongues and gifts. And I think we probably will move into that in the future that lies ahead of us. But more important than any of that has been anchored in the most profound ministry that the Holy Spirit can bring to us. Is to communicate, you are loved. You're loved. The Father is ridiculously, radically in love with you. And the greatest transformation comes When we open up the heart and allow the soul to be loved. And I would put it to you that when we begin that as the foundation point of our experience as Pentecostal Christians, then when our baptism in the Holy Spirit is rooted in a place of being loved, when tongues are rooted in a place of being loved, when gifts and anointings and ministries are rooted in a place of love. And actually we find the healthiest expression of those things, the safest expression, and the expression that God intended. So before we push into that stuff, why don't we open up the heart and allow him to love? Jesus died not so that we would have an academic intellectual knowledge of reading through the Bible and knowing in our heads so we could have an actual experience in our hearts, in our spirits. Why don't you allow the Holy Spirit to introduce you to God as Father today and experience the love that changes people's lives? who Would are, uh, could you stand with me please?